Thanks again, Van. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday here, glad to have you at one of our gatherings. We are, um, I think as Peter was saying, I think you prefaced the song, Peter, did you? I wasn't listening. Sorry. Uh, but we're in Acts right now, so you want to turn in your Bibles or phone apps to the book of Acts. Uh, that would be great. Fifth book of the New Testament, so towards the end of the Bible, but uh, we'll uh, have all this on screen, most of it here on screen here pretty soon too. Uh, Acts 5. So we're in chapter 5 of a 28-chapter book. We will be in Acts. Most of you know this, but all the way through 2019. So we'll finish right before Christmas this year. Still a lot left to get through. But basically at this point, uh, Jesus has died for the sins of the world. He's been raised from the dead three days later. He hung out with people for 40 days, eating with them, talking with them, laughing with them, teaching them how all the Old Testament was about him, teaching about what's going to transpire next, which included his ascension into heaven, which happened Uh, 40 days after his resurrection, and then Pentecost happened 10 days after that, which was this big Jewish festival uh, that Jews were gathered for, and that's when the Holy Spirit came for the first time, at least in this very powerful kind of climactic way that the prophets looked ahead to in the Old Testament, which is basically God filling empty jars like us, uh, sinners like us, and so it was a part of salvation really was this kind of last, if there's any kind of last barrier of like separation or distance between lost people like us and God, that ended at that point when The gospel was preached when Peter stood up and said, Jesus is alive, he died for your sins, you're forgiven if you believe, and baptisms are happening. That's when the Spirit was uh, coming in full. And and thousands at this point of these first Christians, who are all Jewish at this point, are being saved. They're gathering in larger and smaller groups, or larger uh, kind of temple court groups, and then smaller groups in homes. And the church is just starting to do church-like things. And so we we saw last week, uh, Spencer preached on a shorter section, which included... Um, that really the church has been growing and miraculous healings are also taking place. So people are, Jesus is healing people still, even though he's not there physically and bodily, he's there with his church. Uh, People don't do miracles like this, but only God can do it. So God is doing this. He's healing people miraculously, many people miraculously, and the gospel is being preached still as well. So miraculous healing and gospel preaching continue to happen, and today is basically showdown number two, with the Jewish religious rulers who are being uh, threatened, essentially, by the first Christians and their message and these, this apparent work of God, these miraculous healings. And so they're continuing really to reject Jesus Christ as King and Savior. And so what I want to do just for one, basically one minute or less here is a few quick reasons why this is happening. Because some of you might be brand new to this, brand new to the Bible, but help you understand this clash because this is a big part of what's going to happen throughout the rest of the series as well. We see these defenses, these trials basically, that people who are, are not Christians, who are antagonistic towards it, uh, these trials that are occurring these, and these defenses of these Christians who are on trial basically explaining what happened, what they've heard, what they've seen. They've seen this, remember. It's not just an idea. They've seen Jesus alive. They've heard from him. They were there when he died. They actually saw him take his last breath. They looked in the empty tomb. They saw him when he rose. They had lunch with him. And so it was really him, not just a ghost, but really his body. And so all this, they're, they're on defense. So we'll see this play out more. But a few reasons why they are rejecting him. One, many Jews, not all, of course, but we're seeing this, but many Jews rejected him because they, they either, one, expected a political Messiah. So they were saying, free us from Rome rather than free us from our sins. That was a big deal in the first century. Or they relatedly misread the Old Testament almost wholesale and had no category for there being a new kind of priest king, who Jesus ended up being, but that was looked ahead to, but ended up being, who would replace the law, replace the commandments of the Old Testament uh, in place of him, himself. 
and he would fulfill, he would replace them and, and fulfill them and kind of uh, abrogate and, and all of that and make a new testament. So they had no category for that. And the third, this biggest thing is, and if, if you've ever wondered, you know, how the Jews couldn't have seen Jesus fulfill these promises, like, what, isn't it so obvious? The biggest reason, I think, and there are others than these three, but the biggest, uh, other than the first two, uh, is just their sin. They were looking too much at themselves to see Jesus, quite simply. So their sin itself got in the way. They, they were prideful over their religiousness, their law-keeping abilities. The, the Bible uses this phrase, the works of their hands a lot, to refer to morality. That got in the way. And then today we'll see their anger and their jealousy. They're infuriated, actually. They're super angry, but their jealousy toward these first Christians who they thought they were better than. And so that's kind of getting in the way, too, which tells us a lot about where the state of their heart and a lot about this kind of grace-works contrast, which we've seen a lot in Acts so far and we'll continue to see today. So the plan today is look at this theme of freed from prison. There's a lot going on, so I'm going to read it devotionally, which just means read a few verses, comment on them, read a few more verses, comment on them, as opposed to reading the whole thing in full. So uh, just for your uh, awareness of that as, we, as you follow along. Uh, we're going to read and comment devotionally, and I want to encourage you guys to look for the gospel in this passage, as I always do. But what I mean by that today is do not just read this as a history book. And consider that advice for any time you ever read Old or New Testament narrative. Do not read it just as a history book. If you do, you will almost always miss the point of what God is trying to do and say. The Bible is a history book, but it's much more than that. It's a theology book. And so it's selective in terms of what it includes. We know this from the way that the, the writers themselves include things and say that we're not saying everything, but here's what we're saying and this is why we're saying it. So it's a theology book that, that includes things and there are things, there's always things there that, that are more than meets the eye. And so the point is not just what happened, and many people stop their Bible study with the what, just what happened. The point is not just what happened, but why did it happen? And how did it happen? And maybe even more, ultimately, who is presented as the hero explicitly and implicitly? All right, so have that kind of stuff in mind as we read. And I'll come back and explain that if that's a little, uh, little less than clear. So Acts 5:17 to 21a is the first section. So let's start with this and a few comments after. So remember, in context, miracles are happening, the gospel is being preached, and many are receiving it, but many are against it. So verse 17, the high priest of the Jews rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. All right, so a quick observation here before we move on to kind of the meat of this imprisonment and miracle, which we'll spend, and then the ultimate defense, which we'll, we'll get to. It's kind of the meat of today's passage, but... A quick observation, I think a passage like this raises a question, and, or at least presents a tension, and that is, if God is able to do stuff like this, and he clearly is, he already has been doing stuff like this, but if God is able to miraculously open prison doors like this, why doesn't he do it all the time in the lives of the apostles? You ever wonder that? Or maybe you did as we were reading today. Why does he do it all the time? Why are they later, and we'll see this later, why are they later beaten by the council and much later, killed for the faith. Couldn't God have just opened the doors of those circumstances as well and just let them walk away unharmed? And the answer is, of course, he could have. 
So then the further answer to this tension has to be, he must have a plan for suffering. He must. He has a plan for miracles and comfort and salvation, and he has a plan for suffering and persecution. Or we could say, he has a plan for death and a plan for resurrection. And Spence talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to say too much more. If you weren't here, uh, you can podcast that if you want or talk to, talk to him or me about it. But the, I will say this. The, the degree to which I think we believe in and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news that God used his son's suffering to bring about life, the greatest of evils to bring about the greatest of goods, is the degree to which suffering won't surprise us or won't threaten us. But instead, we'll start to ask when we suffer, what greater purpose might there be here to my suffering? Because God clearly has purpose to it. Like in this passage, he's freeing people from prison miraculously, but later they're being beaten. So what's the purpose? God is able. Why is this this still happening? And there's a lot of answers to that. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of complex, layered answers to why bad things happen, evil exists. But this is a big thing we're seeing here is because God's hand is so present, obviously, throughout this whole thing. And so when we ask, why were they beaten? Why are we beaten physically or metaphorically or emotionally or spiritually? Why, does, why do we suffer? We will start to ask less, uh, is God against me? Or is there something wrong? Or do I have enough faith? Or things like that. Well, those questions will sort of uh, go way over here. We'll, we'll bypass them. We'll ask them less. And instead we'll ask, what greater purpose might God have to my suffering? Even as we might pray for relief, we'll still ask that question uh, as he may uh, tarry to answer. Or another way to ask this or kind of see it is suffering doesn't or shouldn't crush the Christian but should produce hope. Romans 5 says suffering produces hope and it does so because we're so centered on the good that comes from Jesus' suffering that we start to look at ours and say, well, could that also happen for us? Not in a one-to-one correlative way, obviously, but in a related way still, in sort of a shadow-to-substance kind of way. How might uh, God have a plan for our suffering as well? So how might we be awakened to look for an opportunity for God to show goodness and glory and relief and using, just, just, uh, using our suffering for, for great things? So, so have that in mind. As we, I know a lot of you guys are suffering, and we talked about this last week too. Have this in mind, though, as we see that there's different ways of God working, but there's intentionality with, uh, with both sides of the coin. All right, let's keep reading, though, and, and get to the meat of this. Acts 5.21b and following. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the people to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Crazy story, isn't it? Isn't it exciting and interesting? And it's almost kind of humorous, where it's like, we just arrested these people for, for preaching the gospel, or talking about Jesus and evoking this name, and we put them in prison behind guards in a locked door, and now they're back out doing the exact same thing. We, it's like we can't stop these guys. There's nothing we can do. And so I think it's supposed to be a little, at least a little bit of a snicker here. Um, at least you, you wonder uh, if, if uh, that's going on. Anger will follow, but at first it's kind of like, what in the world? 
All right, so, so one thing I think at face value that we do see relatedly here is just how pointless and silly it is to fight against God. One thing you see at face value is just how pointless and silly and fruitless it is to fight against God. And that, I think, is our story, too. One thing I want to say here before we go on and, and encourage you guys with is uh, attempt to see yourself in the council here more than the apostles. It might be a paradigm shift for you to see it that way, but don't look at the apostles and say they're pictures of me. Hesitate with that. There's a place for that. There's a time for that. But instead, see yourself in the council, those who are resisting, who are, in, this, uh, in a sense, enemies of God and enemies of Christianity, even if you're Christians here, See your story play out in them. And I think this passage will speak a lot more to you than it would otherwise speak. And so a lot of times when a passage like this is talked about, it's just instantly about, well, how can we evangelize similarly? And how can we use these kind of apologetic arguments to defend the faith? And, and that's great, but I don't think that's the main point. That's the secondary point at best. Uh, so that's for a class maybe sometime. But today we're preaching the gospel, and so we're going to look for that in here. All right, so, so do that. But what I want to do then off of this paragraph is go back and ask a series of similar questions that I, as I did to the first paragraph. And I wrote them out here for clarity because they're really important and they kind of escalate. So here are the questions. We'll start with, why do you guys think this happened at all? Relatedly, and we just talked about this with the whole suffering piece, why couldn't God have just prevented their arrest as opposed to swooping down into the prison cell later on? Seems like a missed opportunity and an unnecessary stay in a public prison, doesn't it? Or does it? Or, why did Luke choose to record the account this way with these details, presupposing it's not just history, but it's theological history? And then the greatest of questions here, does this sound familiar to you at all? As if you've read something like this before elsewhere in the Bible. And that, as we've seen already in Acts, is not just part of the point, but precisely the point. And it gets us right into Luke's head, and we know this because of the way he writes the Gospel of Luke. Remember, this is a part two to the first volume, the Gospel of Luke, as well as how the Bible interprets itself elsewhere. What I mean here is, if you, off of that last question, if you look closely at the details here, the way that this event is recorded, and you stand back especially and kind of get the 30,000-foot view, but then look at some of the words that Luke is using, and the way Luke is choosing to record it, kind of just in general, this story is strikingly similar to the arrest, death, burial, and resurrection story of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you saw this as we read. If you did, that you should have. Uh, That's the point. But here's what I mean. Just a few things here. In this story, like Jesus the apostles were arrested. Like Jesus, they were buried. Like Jesus, guards stood at the face of their tomb or cell. Like Jesus, they were raised up and liberated nonetheless in spite of the guards. Like Jesus, their resurrection was at daybreak or dawn. Like Jesus, angels accompanied the event. And like Jesus, the Jewish leaders had to ask, what in the world's going on and how? And you see this in the gospel accounts as well here They're perplexed by it in both uh, accounts, as you might imagine. And maybe it's also why the angels call Christianity life here, which is kind of an interesting thing, right? We don't see this uh, play out a lot in the the Bible. Christianity is not called, like, capital L, life that much. But maybe in context here with what's going on, it matters because there's a resurrection happening. And so life, being the opposite of death, 
uh, really equals resurrection imagery, which further undergirds the resurrection motif in this passage. So the implication here is, and this is why I talked earlier about this being theology and not just history. If you just approach this as history as though it's a what, we'll totally miss this. But if you approach it as though God cares about the resurrection deeply, way more than we do, way more than we do as readers, even like seasoned readers of the Bible, he cares much more about this story than we do. We could care a lot. We do care a lot. But he cares much more about it. And so he cares about the literary device of repetition, uh, among other things. But the implication here is, do you see how important the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are to the book of Acts? Or to Luke, the author? Or to the angels? Or more importantly, to God? It is not a peripheral part of the biblical storyline, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in his burial. But a repeated, emphasized, preached, and pointed back to theme. And so to the council then, try to put yourself in the council's shoes who are like watching this and seeing this transpire and getting reports of this and all of that. Put yourself in their shoes. To the council, it's almost like the angel or God through the angel is saying by way of the miracle, you guys have rejected the testimony about Jesus' resurrection, but how about now? Do you also reject this mini-resurrection that these Jesus-filled men just experienced? this recapitulated resurrection event? Surely two miraculous coming up out of a pit or prison or tomb events would convince them, right? Or maybe they thought. And maybe part of the motive here is love. This is a really big deal not to miss here. And it's impossible to see if you don't see yourself in the place of the council. If you see yourself only in the place of the apostles as a Christian now, if you're a Christian here today, you'll totally miss this. But if you see yourself in the place of the council, maybe part of the motive here is love. There's instances a lot in Jesus' ministry where he looks at people like this, these Jewish leader types, Pharisees, Sadducees, priestly type people, scribes, lawyers, and he looks at them and it says he looks on them and loves them. You guys remember that in the Gospels, if you've read the Gospels before where he says that? He looks on them and he loves them. And he says something really hard for them, to the, for them to hear because they need to hear, need to hear the kind of tough love thing. So, um, but he looks on them and he has compassion or looks on them and loves them. It's these types of people. And so what I mean by this then is maybe part of the message here, which is seen, not heard. We're going to hear it in a second. At this point, it's seen. Let the circumstances of this event remind you of the greater one that already just occurred. Or let the officer's message, which was, when we opened the doors, we found no one inside, point you back to when the tomb was opened and nobody was found inside. So look at how patient and persistent and gracious and kind God is here. When I, when I say love, I mean, these are enemies. These are like the antagonists of the whole story. It's these Jewish, religious, kind of pastor types, in a way, these leaders, these priestly types. They are the antagonists. Yes, the devil is, for sure. But these are the like, main kind of human antagonists. So they're the enemies. And the fact here that God is not crushing the council, again, he could have done this, right? Crushed them. I mean, literally crushed them. The fact that he doesn't do that, but instead, what does he do? Shows them a resurrection. Look what just happened. Another resurrection event that looked just like the events surrounding Jesus' just happened. 
And it's almost like God is saying, here, this is what I want you to see, and this is what I want you to receive. This is my gift for you, is life from death is my son coming up out of the tomb, and now you're being reminded of it by his followers coming up out of the figurative prison cell tomb in the exact same way Jesus did. God's patience, persistence, and gracious kindness, that's exactly what he was like and is like to you guys today and to me. His posture is here, my son. His posture is here, life from death. His posture is grace. His posture is not crushed. This is why we're not crushed. This is, the, this is the reason why we're not crushed under the weight of his glory as sinners. The reason is he became human to die for us and to rise again, and that is, that's the gospel. All right, so he's about to get more explicit with it, but this is the implicitness of the resurrection so far. So we just saw how the resurrection is typified and symbolized in the events of the apostles being coming up out of this prison cell, now we're going to see it explicitly talked about. And so this is, this is part, another reason why we know that this is the case is because Peter is, is getting explicit with what has already been implicit, and the events we see in the snacks already so far relate to the sermons. That came up in Acts 2 as well. But anyway. All right, so let's see, it. Let's see this now. Acts 5.27 to 32 is the next section. And when they had brought them, they brought the apostles before them. This is when the actual kind of trial begins. They set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All right, so a bit of a gauntlet's being thrown down here, and I'll explain as we go how that's uh, transpiring. Their response to this uh, is uh, really bad, so they, they get extremely angry, and there's reasons uh, for that. But let's talk about the nature of the sermon, or the defense here. Uh, and again, uh, don't tire of seeing this and don't miss it in Acts. As we keep going, we'll see this. How, this isn't the right word for it, but how in Acts, preaching is almost painfully repetitious, and I mean that in a good way, painfully, almost painfully in a good way, gospel-centric. Look at the nature of what he says. Jesus died and Jesus rose. And then he gets at the why. The why is to give repentance, so to give the softening of hearts to people so they can repent, or that just means turn away from their old life and worshiping themselves to worshiping Jesus, to give the possibility of that, to give the reality of that, and then he says, the forgiveness of sins. This is just the simple gospel, right? But the profound gospel, that Jesus died and rose in order to do this. So his death, again, was not peripheral or accidental. It, it was part of the plan. The way that God forgives is through the shedding of Jesus' blood. That's how forgiveness is ushered in. There is no other way. We'll get some more of that later. But this, I think, is also why he uses this phrase, um, hanged on a tree. So in, at the end of verse 30, the God of our fathers raised or resurrected Jesus. Before that, he was killed. And he puts it on the council. So you guys killed him by hanging him on a tree. But it's a, kind of a curious, seemingly out of, out of place phrase, hanged on a tree. 
uh, especially if we haven't read much of the Bible maybe before or we don't have a Jewish mind and none of us or a few of us really do. So, um, but this is why I think he mentions this phrase and I think it links with the idea of forgiveness of sins. So he didn't, this is what I mean, he didn't just die, he died a particular death on a tree cross to show us that, as Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, he was being cursed. As Deuteronomy in the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who is hung on, these are God's words, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, knowing that he would come into history later and actually do that. So to show us he was being cursed, like, as Joshua 10.26 says, like the pagan kings in Joshua who were hanged on trees after Israelite military victory. So in Joshua 10, also in the Old Testament, Joshua, uh, this leader at this time, this commander, struck the evil pagan Canaanite kings and he put them to death and he hanged them on five trees and they hung on trees until evening. And after that, it says, they took their bodies down and put them in caves and put stones over the caves. Who does that sound like? Right, so the point here, guys, this is really important to see. I know this is, re- this is review for many, a lot of you maybe, but rejoice with me in this. And if it's new, please hear this. This is what the gospel is. The point to him saying, the way you kill Jesus, the means, the visual, was a tree hanging, essentially being hanged up on a tree, put up on a tree, is that Jesus' death is meant to be a curse. Jesus' death is meant to associate with the worst of people. In fact, it's like he's becoming those people even though he never sinned. He's being hanged up on a tree, tortured, cursed like the pagan kings of old, like the enemies of God themselves, becoming sin even though he wasn't, like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us so that in him, we, the ones who are being passed over and saved, might become what? The righteousness of God. We might be cleansed. We might be passed over. Jesus' death is not just about cleansing, contrary to what you might have heard before. It's about substitution. It's about sin absorption. It's about bearing the curse of God in our place. We can't miss it. This is why Jesus died among criminals as well. He died a criminal's death, even though he wasn't. This is the gospel. Jesus did this for you guys. So when you hear this here, okay, I, I hear what this, what this means, and I hear the connection you're making, but then hear this. This is for you. God was, he became like, two weeks ago, Ananias, that really bad guy in Acts, uh, the early part of Acts 5. He became here because the the circumstances of their death are so similar, if you were here for that. Here, he's becoming like the Canaanite, cursed, pagan, enemy of God, kings of old. Even though he wasn't, he's God's son, God's beloved son. But he became that because that's what we are. You see? He became what we are so that we wouldn't have to be that anymore. It's classic substitution. But this is like the worst of things. He became the worst of things. He took on the worst of things. He wore the worst of things. This is why the sun went out for three hours at noon on a weekday. For three hours, the sun just went out. Darkness fell over the land, as the prophets predicted, but it actually happened when Jesus was on the cross because it almost couldn't shine anymore. It was such a dark moment, such a cursed moment. Why God turned his face away from his son, and, and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
This is the good news. This, because this happened, we are saved. Because this happened, we are forgiven. Because this happened, we can see the love of God and know that even though we bring nothing to the table, we're incredibly loved. All right, so then they add this statement, which at this point, things probably aren't going so well um, during the defense, but then they add this and the gauntlet really gets thrown down. They add because they've obeyed, it says, I'll just read this, we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit, this is the key phrase, whom God has given to those who obey him. So what what they're saying is we have the Holy Spirit because we have obeyed God by, by believing the gospel. That's what obedience means here. The the phrase obey the gospel is used a lot in the New Testament. So it's not obey the law, it's obey the fact that God died for your sins. We've obeyed it, we've kind of come under it, we've bent the knee to it, we've believed it, and so through that we've received the Holy Spirit. And this is where the gauntlet gets thrown down because this is what I think is probably going through the mind of the council is these young, unschooled fishermen have the Holy Spirit and are somehow sharing in these blessings, but we, these older, wiser teachers of the law, do not? They can't be. Impossible. It's just too much. It's too much grace for very proud, full-of-themselves people to handle. Any of us. We're all like this. But that's what's going on here. This is why they're angry. It's kind of like a, a layered grace cake. They keep building layer upon layer upon this grace cake, and they're slapping on the frosting, and it's like, constantly, constantly all about Jesus and grace and about him doing everything. And, and it's grace, though, over and against our works. If this is all the, the case, if it's all true like we've been saying, then our works have no place in the equation. Faith and law, grace and works, flesh and spirit are contradicting terms in the Bible. They might not be for us in our minds, but biblically, they are over and over and over again. So for these men, it's too much to handle. All right, so let's just see how how they handle it, though. And then something interesting happens here in the, the latter part. So Acts 5, 33 to 43, the last part of this section. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Keep that in mind. Ask yourself, why are they so angry? There's one good answer for it, and we'll explain it here in a minute. They were enraged and wanted to kill them for this. 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for Jesus' name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching 
that the Christ is Jesus. All right. Again, fascinating, isn't it? What a great story. Now, I want to start with Acts 5.33, and we'll talk through some of this stuff here. But um, when it says, it starts by saying, when they heard this, I think that this is referring to everything that they've said, but especially the fact that they're saying, we have this visible manifestation of an ultimate blessing or presence of God, and it's the actual Holy Spirit of God. We have that, and, and they use obedience language. We have obeyed God. It, with the implication is they haven't, because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And they're older and wiser and smarter, and they, they know their Bibles better, and they're spiritual leaders, and they don't have it. When that gets communicated, that tension is felt, the gauntlet's thrown. And when they heard that especially, they were enraged and on the spot wanted to kill them. So, again, we ask the question, why? What explains this level of anger? i kind of been saying it already, but, for, but I'll say it again. And actually, two weeks ago, this came up as well. Anger at others that are getting blessed or included or used by God or, or whatever you want to put in that blank. Anger at others that you think you're above is a telltale sign of what we call works-based righteousness. You see it all over the Bible, all over the Bible. The very beginning, fourth chapter in actually in Genesis 4, we see this play out with Cain and Abel, but you see it all throughout the Bible. Works-based righteousness shows itself with anger against those that you think you're better than, but they're sort of passing you up somehow. And that's what's happening here. Do they want to be right? Sure. Do they have a misplaced zeal for God, thinking they're understanding the Old Testament correctly and seeking to squelch those that they think are misinterpreting it? Is that going on too? Probably. But a big part of this is their seething anger at the apparent blessing of God over these, these Christians who they thought they were better than. And in some ways, this is where it gets scandalous, in some ways, based on law, they were. And this is what makes this whole thing so problematic in a way for them. But again, scandalous is the law keepers, the commandment keepers, the good people, in a sense, are not being saved or filled with the Holy Spirit or blessed. But the gospel clingers are. You see, it's a face-off. Who's receiving the Holy Spirit? People who really don't keep the Old Testament law that well and who are not that smart and who are not teachers and who are blue-collar and who are very ordinary and who are young and who don't deserve it. They're receiving the Holy Spirit, but people on the other side of the spectrum are, at this point anyway, are not. And that's going to change. There are people, there are Pharisees, Sadducees, priests who become Christians. So that's, they're not exempt just by title. But here at this point, we're seeing how their self-perception, thinking that they're good, that they have something to bring, is actually keeping them away at, at the same time. All right? So then we come to Gamaliel. So this guy, um, there's so much I want to say about him. He could, he could be his own sermon. So obviously there's, there's a lot more here. But basically, to summarize, what he's saying is, is there's a lot of lucidity here and logic and humility. I love what he says. Basically, he's saying, guys, Men have claimed messiahship before. Men have claimed to be king before. Men have claimed to be somebody before. But what happened when they died? Their movement just died with them. So these Jesus people have built everything on his supposed resurrection. If it's true, it's of God and it will flourish. If it's not, it will die because Jesus is still dead somewhere, his body somewhere, but it will especially die with the apostles' deaths. 
Then he says, we don't want to be found fighting against God. Isn't that fascinating? Which is basically saying, it's the same thing as saying, maybe there's something we don't know. Do you see, and note the marked difference here between him and his peers, these leaders. Notice how different they're approaching the message, right? For Gamaliel, it's, we don't want to be fighting against God, which is basically equaling, this actually might be of God. They might be right. A sliver of him is open to the notion, right? That's why he's saying this. This might be of God. Maybe there's something we don't know. Maybe they're right. It is, it is the stark 180 opposite mindset from his peers. You end up listening to him, which is really cool, at least temporarily. But what, what I think is going on here is this is a grace-based, a grace-centered, we-don't-deserve-blessing mindset, whereas the council is coming at it from a, more of a works-based, moralistic, we-deserve-this mindset, and they're enraged that others are getting it first. Do you guys remember the parable of the workers in the vineyard that Jesus said in Matthew? Uh, it comes up elsewhere too, I, I believe in the synoptics, but in Matthew, Jesus says, basically the kingdom of God is like this. God is like a vineyard owner, and he hires some workers in the morning, like at 8 o'clock, to start working. Then he realizes at 3 p.m. he needs more, so he hires more people at 3 p.m. All of them quit for the day at 5 p.m., but all of them get the same wage. They all get paid the same wage. So those that work for eight or nine hours get the same money as those that work for two hours. And, and what, what Jesus is saying is, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's just like that. You see how much grace there is in that? I mean, Jesus is literally saying in that parable, it's not about how much you work. It's a metaphor, but it's also kind of not really a metaphor because it's about work. It's about being given something you don't deserve. The two-hour workers don't deserve the same wage, but they're, they're being given it. That's Christianity. All of us, and I'm one of them, but all of us who are fairness fanatics, we have to lay that at the foot of the cross. It's not about control. It's not about fairness. Christianity is actually really unfair, but in a way that benefits us. If God were totally fair, we'd all not take our next breath. But he's unfair by letting us breathe. He's unfair by letting us come to church and hear the gospel and hear his voice. He's unfair by rewarding us, not for our works, but basically saying, I love you. And here, uh, have a seat at my table and be called my son or daughter. And this is the way you're going to be able to do that. I'm going to die for you. And so the kingdom then is like that. But for people that are, are centered more on it's actually what we do that gets us in, that parable is... Not only the opposite of what they believe, but it's the most offensive thing you can possibly hear because everything you are working for, every little brick in the tower of your awesomeness that you are building that you thought was to your credit, everything is coming crashing down. And all of it is forfeit. Do you see how there's no room for anything that we bring? There's no room for any type of commandment-keeping mindset? There's no room for, for a trophy-centered, ribbon-centered, resume-centered, crown-centered view. Speaking of our crowns and resumes, to be clear, but there's, there's no room for that at the foot of the cross, and this is why it's problematic and difficult. This is the plight of the human experience. Not just the evil things that we do, and we do them all the time, 
but this is the plight of the human experience. It's a type of God-rejecting self-sufficiency, whether in a faddish diet, a social or political agenda, loving the poor or immigrant, foreign film snobbery, intense physical workouts, Ten Commandment keeping, volunteerism, a style of parenting that you think is the best kind and you condescend others for not being up to your level, a religion wholesale, a healthy marriage. All of those things, and in all of those things, fashioning them into ladders that we laughingly believe reach all the way into heaven. Or at least they're taller than the other ladders next to us, we might think, and maybe that's enough. But you see how the religious person thinks? How we all think until the gospel wrecks us. Until we realize, uh, no, it's not about that at all. Because really, biblically, there's only one ladder. And it comes down, it doesn't go up. The one ladder that matters comes down out of heaven. It is not fashioned up from the ground. And the apostles actually, I'll come back to this verse here to, uh, to wrap us up or start to wrap us up. Acts 5.41 when it says they leave after they're beaten and they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the apostles here, who we've already seen and said, image Jesus here in a resurrection kind of way. We've already seen that. The apostles here, in their joyous suffering, so mark that in your mind or if you're a note taker, joyous suffering, the apostles give us a glimpse of this ladder. It's a glimpse of him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It's a glimpse of him who rejoiced in his suffering, in his flogging, in his crucifixion. And I'll borrow words from Acts 5 when it talks about obedience. See, the apostles, it says, were obedient to God or the gospel and they received the Holy Spirit. Really, the ultimate obedient one, this is where the apostles point us to, is the one who was Philippians 2, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And I'll borrow this word, dishonor, the one who was dishonored for us. Spit on, crowned with thorns, stripped naked, mocked, laughed at, derided, heads shook at in disgust, put to open shame, but all by design. See, in Acts 5, this picture of the apostles having joy amidst suffering in connection with a figurative death and resurrection that they already experienced, should, it should necessarily, it has to, point us to the one who joyfully suffered for us. When it says joy set before him, it means knowing his father had the power to raise him from the dead after his torturous death. And it means he had joy in dying for those he loved. That's a piece to it too. I had this weird, um, it's, it's not weird, but it might sound weird, but I'll just say it. Um, this weird thing that I um, think about a lot, it's maybe a, too much of a death uh, fixation, but I, I um, think about and want to, actually, um, I really want to die uh, for my wife <laughs> and my kids. Like, I, I think that would be a great way to go out, and I really want to do that. Like, it's, um, it's kind of odd. Uh, yeah, like, you can analyze that, I guess, how you'd want. <clears throat> but, I mean, I'm not, I'm just, this is, my, this is my story. 
Husbands, you can, you can relate. If you love your wives, you can relate. If you don't love your wives, you can't. But if you love your wives, you can relate. Um, I'm sharing this because it would be a joyful thing for me to do that because I, I value their lives more than my own um, without question. So that would be a joyful thing. But here's why I'm sharing this. If I think this and I'm evil and I'm a really, really bad person, bad person, you guys have no idea, I'm a terrible person. If I think this, though, and I'm a bad person, how much more does Jesus think this? And he's perfect. See, the joy set before him, you guys, we're li- look at what he did. Look, he's hanging on a tree for you. This only happens to cursed people. The Son of God became cursed for you. So you might be saved. Do you believe it? And it's not just that it happened. It's that it's for the joy set before him, the joy of saving those he loved that he did it. Isn't that amazing? This is the gospel. See, the trial here in Acts 5 is not about someone being good or bad. What's the trial all about? It's not about someone being moral or immoral. The entire trial is about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. It's not a question of the law. It's a question of the resurrection. Not law, but grace. Because the resurrection is what matters. It's what saves people. It's what offends people. And that's the question that confronts us all. And so when the council here says, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, I think that's a funny, almost like, I think these guys aren't knowing what they're saying kind of moment. We see this in the Bible sometimes where they speak beyond themselves. Because here they're saying, you intend to make us guilty, right? That's what they mean by this. You intend to just remind us that we killed Jesus and, and, and all that stuff. But really I think what they're saying without realizing it is um, you apostles intend to save us, right? Because to be covered with the blood of Jesus, to have the blood upon us, is the only thing that saves us. You guys see the linguistic deal here? You guys intend to bring this man's blood upon us. If that's the question, yes. Yes. That's what I intend for you all in this room right now, that the blood of Jesus would be upon you and me. That's what God intends for us all, that blood would be upon us and that that would save us. A death has occurred. And like a death occurs, Hebrews 9 says in context here, but I'll get to this. A death has occurred like when a will is written and a death occurs and the benefits of that will go into effect. Hebrews 9 says, a death has occurred. So the benefits of the covenant, of the will of God, so to speak, go into effect only at his death. If he didn't die, there's no salvation. If he didn't die, there's no peace. If he didn't die, there's no forgiveness. If he didn't die, there's no hope of seeing his face again and walking with him and talking with the God of the universe. There's no hope of a new Eden. There's no hope of a, of a final garden city where we'll dwell in the new heavenly Jerusalem that comes down and, and resurrects this earth and brings it back to its full glory and splendor. Like, no hope, none of that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Period. That's not like, yeah, sometimes true, like a proverb. This is all the times true. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. There's no way for God to forgive us without blood being shed. There's no way. This is what I, I, I'm, the Bible presents to us to believe. You, don't ha- you, you can choose to reject this and not believe it, but this is what we present. We present the gospel is the way that God's forgiving is to absorb our offense, which happens, by the way, when you forgive people, you absorb the opportunity to get vengeance on them. 
right? Forgiveness is always costly. Always. With humans it is. If my wife forgives me, she absorbs my offense and absorbs any opportunity to get me back. And she says, we're okay. That's what God has done. And the way, though, that he absorbs, the way he takes on the problem is through Christ, is through his son's shed blood. The way we have forgiveness, guys, so if you believe the gospel, you're saved. Christian, believe the gospel and you're saved. Uh, Not a Christian yet in the room? Believe the gospel and you're saved. And in that, the blood of Jesus will come upon you and you'll be washed, cleansed, unfairly saved, unfairly saved, but loved and loved through that, adopted, declared a son and daughter, and given a place at the table of God forever. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for this passage, uh, the rich